I can't begin to tell you how important this week's interview is to me. My dad has been my Superman for as long as I can remember. For those of you that don't know my history, uh, let me fill you in on this. My parents divorced when I was about five or six. Uh, I don't have too many memories of my mom. My dad raised us. As a single father, he raised, you know, four or five kids. You know, I think in the end, you know, it was me, Mike, Danny, Angie, Nick, Sal, and Robbie. You know, and this is... uh. You know, my my dad and I had single-handedly raised us, um, you know, after my dad remarried. I, I've seen my dad stand up to gangbangers. I've seen my dad stand up to people who, the purse snatchers. I've seen him chase down a purse snatcher outside of a, a, a grocery store. The 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 level of, of morals and ethics that my dad lives with, he, he, he truly lives by a code. And... Um, and gosh, I can only hope that, you know, growing up, I can demonstrate even the slightest bit of, uh, of, the, of that same type of moral code to my kids because um, he, he has a huge impact on who I became in my life. And anybody that um, when you talk about morality, they have this thing called the smell test or the mom test. But for me, it's the dad test. You know, if it's not something that I would feel comfortable going home and telling my dad about, it's probably not something that I should do. So uh, I'm not going to keep you any longer. But um, my dad, Vietnam vet, laborer for over 30 years to support a family, uh, passion for horses. And um, yeah, this is my dad, Willard Salgateras. He goes by to sell. Into the cam, two of them, two cameras. Whoa. Okay, so first, this camera will be people may be asking questions from the family. So, like, <laughs> Teresa's already, I, I let everybody know that I'm going to be interviewing aunts and uncles, and so Teresa already said to say hi to you and uh, you know, to send her to send you her love. This camera here is going to be for us, right? And so, this is the one that's going to be for the kids and, and later. All right, so first, um, hi everybody. I'm Vince, this is my dad. Uh, dad, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Sal, or otherwise known as Willard Escateris. And uh, when were you born? Um, as far as they tell me, oh, uh, June. All right, I see where this is gonna go. 1948. <laughs> okay, and, uh, and, and where were you born? In Paris. Paris, Illinois. Paris, Illinois. And where is Paris, Illinois? From here, it's probably 168 miles and here south. Is and here is Chicagoland area-ish? Yeah. Well, here in Tinley Park. Here, here in Tinley. Awesome. And so did you guys live there your whole life? No, we moved out of there when I was, well, 11? 11, 12? 12. Okay, and uh, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Too many. I had nine sisters, but one of them was killed. And how old? Little. How old was she? She was five, I'm thinking. Five. And and how did uh how did she and, she die? Uh, we were moving a raising a house up to put a uh, basement under it, and the cribs gave way, the house gave way. I think okay. it was the train that caused it. Nobody really knows what Which it. which house is this? Which one? Where? What city were you guys in? in? Paris. So this is all. This is down south. Yeah. Okay. And she's buried down south. I'm assuming because I hear Aunt Perry and Aunt Angie go down there. Yeah, the Cemetery there. 
And how often do you guys, how often do you go to Paris? I haven't been to Paris since I retired. The, the year I retired. When was that? Um, 2005. 2000, 2005? Yep. Yeah. No, it was 2007. All right. I got my years off. That's all right. And so after you guys moved from Paris, where did you move to? We moved to Plainfield. Plainfield. And what, what brought you guys to Plainfield? Crops. Tomatoes. Uh, Dad used to plant tomatoes and have a vegetable farm. Okay. And now I, I can remember talking to Aunt Perry, and Aunt Perry said that he was a tailor. He started out as a tailor. She would mentioned that he made a suit for somebody. Uh, MacArthur. General McCarthy. Yeah. Okay, so he made a suit for General McCarthy. And, and oh, well, he didn't make a suit. He made uh, quite a few of his uniforms. Oh, I, I didn't know that. He made mainly since okay. he worked in San Antonio. That was all a military town. Yeah. So he made a lot of different uh, military outfits for the officers. And so I, I want to trace back here because I don't know much about Grandpa. So I'm gonna I'm gonna trace back. Where was he born? He was born in Mexico. Okay. Okay. Um, Raina said, "Was it for MacArthur or for Eisenhower?" Probably both. Okay. All right. Um, and so he was born in Mexico. Yeah. And did he get married in Mexico, or was he? Or did they get married before? Uh, no, they got married here, if I recall. Okay. Um, and they came from. And he was a tailor in in Mexico. Is he was a tailor here. He was a tailor here. What did he do in Mexico? Uh, his dad used to be a butcher, uh, run a butcher shop or something. Anyway, and uh, so that's where he learned. Uh, Animals and, and so that would be your grandpa, right? Yeah. Did no, you? Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you yeah. know? Never met. Never met. Okay. Um, so Juan is watching. Uh, Jesse is watching. Your granddaughter and Raina and Teresa are, are all watching right now. Um, I never met my uh, my dad's mom. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and so they got married when they came here, and uh, he was a tailor, and then he, he, obviously he must have stopped being a tailor at some point. Uh, yeah, when uh, he wound up having a lot of kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, uh, Raina says that Grandma had books with the receipts and patterns in them, but someone stole them from their house. Uh, all right, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's not the first time that I've heard of uh, valuables being stolen from, from the houses. Did, didn't you have medals from, uh, from the Army? Yeah. Where, what, what happened to the medals? Most of them I just left in Nam. <laughs> I couldn't, okay. uh, couldn't take them with. All right. Got them in Nam, they stayed there. That, that's Because you know? I heard a story that the, the medals that were here, or the patches or something, were, were stolen from the house over there in Parks. No, I still got some... Uh, some medals and some uh, ribbons, and, but I okay. don't have them all because I left some of them over there. Okay. Couldn't carry them, so left them. Okay, uh, Teresa says hi. Raina says hi. Hi, uh, back. Yeah. Um, all right. Move. Sorry, I want to go back to the history stuff again. So you guys moved to Plainfield from, and he stopped being a tailor. Moved to Plainfield to work in the farms? I'm thinking he moved to Michigan first. I'm okay. not sure if that was before my time. Right. And then from there they moved to Paris.
Yeah. And so you have nine sisters, or that's all you had mentioned so far. Any brothers? I have four. Well, three others. Three, three other brothers. Okay. And so where are you in the pecking order? I'm second to last. And, all right, and so um, who's, who's um, the youngest? Uncle Al. Uncle Al's the youngest. All right. And so then it was you, Uncle Adrian, Uncle Al? No. It was Uncle Al first. He was the youngest. Yeah. And me. Then Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil. And then Uncle Phil. No, three Phil. other brothers. That's Uncle right. Adrian. Okay. Um, oh, gosh, yeah, that opens up a whole other stories to, to start asking about. Uh, so then at some point, they moved from Plainfield to Joliet. Right, in 59, I think. And they lived in, uh, I mean, I, I, I know it obviously as Grandma's house on Eastern. Um, what was that house before they moved in? Well, years ago, I heard that it was the first courthouse in Will County. Okay, I've heard the same thing. I think uh, I think Aunt Perry may have told me the story of how the people who lived there before, uh, the daughters came to take a look at the house, and their dad was a, uh, a judge. Uh, Marissa joined. Uh, that's uh, Greg and Marianne's daughter. Um, anyway, so that they came to look at the house, and they were able to describe the house before uh, Aunt Perry let them in. So, so then you guys live in Joliet. Are you still working in the fields? Uh, no, once we moved into Joliet. We... And how old were you when you moved to Joliet? I was in seventh grade, so I had to be Oh, about so you were already 12. junior high. Well, they didn't call it junior high back then. All right. And <laughs> seventh grade. I mean, it was Gompers, but in Paris, there was no such thing as junior high. Okay. Everything was in the same school. All right. So Raina said that she researched it and couldn't find any information saying it was a, a courthouse. Uh, Raina, I, I did the same research. I couldn't find the information. Um, but this would... I, I listened to Aunt Perry tell me the story. And this was a person who lived in the house. And he served court out of the house that he lived in. Uh, that's the story that I got. And the ladies who, were, who came in to look at the house... It was their daughters. It was the judge's daughter who came to look at the house, and um, and they were able to describe the house, and they were able to describe the little bench that sits out there before you go up into the stairs. I mean, I'm pretty sure I remember. I think the lion's heads were carved into the benches. That that was the place for people to wait before they got called into the judge's quarters, which is where the the sliding doors were at. So I, and and the judge lived upstairs. Um, now I'm uh, out of everybody. I'm, I'm the youngest of, of all the the first cousins. So I didn't go upstairs too often because I thought it was scary up there. Uh, but apparently there's bedrooms upstairs in that house. And I think there was a, another floor above that. The attic. The attic that, uh, that I think was turned into like a living quarters after everybody moved out. Oh, I um, know. Yeah, I think they're, they're using it for like Airbnb or it's an apartment building right now. But anyway, so that's the story that I, that I got from, I think it was Aunt Perry told me the story recently. Um, okay, so moving on. So you were at Gompers. Uh, so Gompers was there back when we were in Gompers. That was what, 1950 something? 59, I think. Okay, so 59, 60. I think I was at Gompers. And then after going to Gompers, you went to where? Washington. You went to Wa Washington Junior High? Yeah. I didn't realize that you transferred from Gompers to. We, uh, we moved from uh, where we moved into Joliet. We moved right below the hill on Woodward. Oh, that's funny because she's actually just now talking about Woodruff. Uh, so Raina said also before they lived on Eastern, they rented a house on Woodruff from my dad's Actually, parents. Actually, Woodward. Woodward? 
Yeah, I think that was the name of the street. It was right next to Woodruff. Okay. All right, and that was there on what's now known as the hill. Yeah, as you go up the hill yeah. on the right. Okay, and so that's why you transferred from Gompers to Washington. Right. Okay, so I, yeah, I didn't know any of this. Uh, and after, yeah, Raina says she agrees. <laughs> and, so, and so after you left uh, Washington, you went to, where'd you go to high school? Joliet Township. Okay, and so Joliet Township is, that's the castle-looking building in Joliet. Right. right, made of the limestone, and uh, describe that a little bit. That I I heard it was the junior college at one point. Uh, it has four four floors in it. Okay, and the fourth floor was Joliet Junior College. It took up the whole fourth floor. And so Joliet Junior College was in the same building as the high school students. Right. Okay. They moved out in '67, maybe. Okay. '66. Joliet Junior College to the campus that they're in now on the right. west side. All right. right. And uh, and while you were in high school, did you play any sports? Yeah, I, I did some wrestling and I uh, played some football my senior year. I didn't know you played football. Okay. So I, I knew about the wrestling. Did you wrestle all four years? No, I wrestled my sophomore, junior, and senior year. My freshman year, I only went half a day. Why only half a day? School was too crowded. So wow. freshman went only <laughs> half a day. Okay, that's actually kind of cool. I, I, I didn't know that. And um, and so you went to school half a day. You wrestled sophomore, junior, senior years. Okay, you got any good wrestling stories? Because I've heard some wrestling stories from you. Actually, about the only real good one I have is when I was a sophomore, a guy from either Thornton or Hodden Kanky Key. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he beat me 29 to nothing. And, uh, <laughs> this is not where Angie's kids got it from. <laughs> and uh, he was... And he was jumping up and down and just so happy and everything else. Well, when I was a senior, I met him again. He looked like an ox. And everybody says... Sal, that's your man. And I says, yeah, I know. How do you know? I wrestled him before. Oh, did you beat him? No, he beat me. On the family page, yeah. He beat me 29 to nothing. And they says, 29 to nothing? He must be good. I says, he is. He's real good. Well, the match started, and first round, he had me down 14 to nothing. Okay. And the rep asked me, you're behind, what do you want, up or down? I says, I'll take down. Well, what does that mean, you'll take down? That means that when that second uh, round starts or second period starts, you're on the mat and he's on top of you. Okay. Well, coach started hollering at me. You know that if you're... Losing, you take up. You never take down. You know that. And I just smiled at the coach and said, yeah, I know that. Well, the ref said wrestle. 14 seconds into that period, I pinned him. And he got up and the ref says shake hands and he won shake hands. His coach went out there and says, go hit the showers. 
you're no longer on my team if you won't shake his hand. Well, okay. the guy went to the showers and he was off the team. You know, now I, I can remember, uh, that's funny you bring up the, the story like that, shaking hands. Uh, now, I'm going to fast forward a ton and then I'm going to end up coming back. At some point you coached baseball, right? Yeah. And, and I can remember when the, the kids would lose because, I mean, you coach, what team did you coach? Blackhawk roofing and remodeling. And uh, and what what place did we come in almost every year? Last. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we weren't a very good team. And and I can remember you saying some stuff to the kids. And and when the when the kids would cry after losing, what would you tell them? I tell them, I don't want to see any tears because I don't see any tears when you win. I remember that phrase exactly from when I played for Blackhawk. That if you don't cry when you win, don't cry when you lose. Um, Raina asked, do you still have your yearbooks? No. No. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, Raina. No yearbooks. Um, okay, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. Also, while you were in high school, you were part of the FFA? Yeah. What's the FFA? Future Farmers of America. And what did you do? I was the secretary. And what, is, what does Future Farmers of America do? Because this may not be around in 100 years when, when Lena's watching this video again with um, her kids. Actually, <laughs> Future Farmers are um, kids that want to get into agriculture. Even the, And a lot of the kids were farm kids that already were in agriculture, but they wanted to learn more. Okay. So I got into it figuring, well, it'll be an easy class. Found out. It wasn't easy. Nothing easy about it. <laughs> All right. And did you go into farming at any point? No. Okay. Cool. Now, after high school, what happened? Well, I graduated on a Thursday, and I was in the service on Monday. In the service. What year was that? 1966. And what was happening in the around the world in 1966? Well, you had the Vietnam War going. Mm -hmm. You had... Um, couple other different conflicts going and mainly the Vietnam War and people leaving. All right, and so and, and and so you were and so you were in the army and what uh, what division or what did you who did you serve with? I was with the uh, 101st Airborne. Did you start with the 101st? Yeah, that's my that was my unit I was sent to. That's the unit you were sent to. And now, the, the 101st, I mean, we've all seen, well, I have, I don't know if you have. Uh, I've seen the movies about the 101st. There's a lot of movies about them in terms of, like, the Band of Brothers from World War II. Is the 101st something that you can just, you know, jump into? Or do you have to qualify to be part of the 101st? Uh, actually, you have to be jump qualified. What does that mean? That means you have to be a paratrooper. Have to be a paratrooper, which means what? There's some people that, that don't understand what that means. Um, you get into perfectly good planes and you jump out of them. Okay. <laughs> so, so you jump out of, out of the plane. Uh, Raina asked, how long did you serve for? Uh, a little over 30 months. 30 months. Now, nowadays we see that the service time is typically four years. So how come 30 months and not the 48 months? Well, I was in Vietnam at the time when they said... Anybody that goes home with less than six months left, they'll automatically get out. Okay. So, I stayed there another two months so that I could come home with less than six months. 
So you stayed in you stayed in Vietnam longer than most people went to Vietnam for. Right. All right. And in the army, where did you do your training at? Well, I did some in Florida. I did some in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. What was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma? Artillery. Artillery. I, I still have the banner from Fort Sill. I was very qualified. And what does that mean? That means that um, I was qualified on 105 howitzers. They're howitzers small. are big guns. Yeah, they're big guns. <laughs> okay, so you're qualified to shoot big guns. I mean, they're not guns that you carry. <laughs> right. You pull them. <laughs> I'm picturing like the old cannons that are on the ground. Right. You pull. Fire! <laughs> well, that's what they were. <laughs> All right, and so you went to Fort Hill, Oklahoma, and... While you were in Fort Sill, you sent Aunt Perry, or you, you, maybe your mom, uh, uh, Bonnie is also on here right now, she says hi, uh, you, you, you sent them, uh, I'll, I'll, Raina, I'll get you a picture of the banner, I have it upstairs, um, she just wants to see it, um, and so you, you sent them the banner, what was the banner from? Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Fort Sill, Oklahoma. They're, uh, they're um, the base, Fort Sill. So, okay, and that's where artillery was, was trained at. Right. And so after you left Fort Sill, where did you go? I went to Fort Benning. Fort Benning, that's in Georgia. Fort Benning, Georgia. And what did you do in Fort Benning? Uh, jump school. Okay, and so Fort Benning, Georgia must be the 101st. No, Fort Benning, Georgia is jump school. Jump school. That, that's where you learn how to jump out of planes. Okay, all right. And so how long were you there for? Three and a half weeks. <laughs> you learned how to jump out of planes in three and a half weeks. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and how many jumps did you make in those three and a half weeks? Uh, five. Five jumps in three and a half weeks. And then after you went from you know Fort Sill to Fort Benning, what was next? Then I went to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Now, what's in Fort Campbell, Kentucky? 101st Airborne. That's the home of the 101st. That's the home of the 101st. And, and what was different from Fort Benning to Fort Campbell? Fort Campbell was my home base. That was... I mean, the, what, uh, what did you do there? What was, what at was Fort the Campbell? Place? Yeah. When I first got there, mm -hmm. I played war. What does that mean? That means that they had a big war going on mm -hmm. in three or four states to train guys that were going to Vietnam about okay. what to expect. Well, I was with a Green Beret outfit, or I had a Green Beret captain. Mm -hmm. And I Rob, was, Robbie also just joined. Oh, hi, Rob. And I was uh, sent to them. Raina, I'm getting to that. We're getting there. And I was sent to them, and me and another guy, and we were taken up into this big lake, and there was a boat waiting for us, and it was cold. It wasn't freezing, but it was cold. And the guy gunned that boat, and we got all wet. Okay. Well, when we got to the other side of the lake, there was four other guys there, and the captain, and we were going to be the gorillas. We were going to be the Viet Cong. We were going to hit and run like Viet Cong would. And it had referees. Mm-hmm. And... Mainly it was a war that was played, that was the game. And so that was to prepare you guys to go over to Vietnam? Not us guys, to prepare the regular soldiers to go over to Vietnam. And so at this point you weren't 
preparing to go to Nam yet? No. Okay. Um, and, and so that's what you did there. You, you, you played war to prepare those guys who were getting ready to go. You right. played the enemy. I got there right before Christmas, maybe, maybe about the 12th of December. Okay. Somewhere in that area. And if, when did you end up in Vietnam? In 1967. And what month? The end of November. Okay, so you were you were training for almost a year, from December through November of the next year. Right. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to keep going with that. So you went from Florida, Fort Sill, Fort Benning, and then where? Well, from well, I was at Fort Campbell. Fort Campbell, sorry, okay. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I came home that year for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Went back, and uh, come the. 2nd of January, I was called into the office and says, Gutierrez, you're going to med school. Okay. <laughs> so I, you uh, just got picked to go to med school? Actually, before I went in, I, the enlistment officer told me I was going to be a medic. Now, did you want to be a medic? At the time, no. And so they just, they just told you where you were going to go. Well, how did they choose you to be the medic? Uh, the test that I had taken prior to going into the service. Okay. Uh, they give you a lot of tests, and the man says, you're score, you're going to be a medic. Mm -hmm. and, and so you ended up going to medic training. Where did you go to medic training at? Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Fort Sam Houston, Texas. I know, I've heard about Fort Sam Houston from you. Um, there's one guy there that you made mention of, uh, Hugh Akins. Who was Hugh Akins? He was a guy I made friends with over there. He was a weightlifter. Mm -hmm. that's, why I, that's why I know the name. <laughs> uh, he was a power lifter. Um, nice guy. Nicest mm -hmm. guy you ever want to know. Yeah. And uh, I saw a picture of him afterwards. I think you showed me a picture of him. And I said, that ain't the Hugh I used to know. Right. The Hugh I used to know was a big guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had said he had lost a lot of weight and yeah. quit body or power lifting. And yeah, I, I believe he was a, a pastor. Uh, out of New York. Yeah, when I, some when kind I last, of reverend or something. Yeah, so, so when I last saw him. Now, Teresa, again, this is probably before my time. She had, she said you have a story about eating snakes. Yes, I've ate a few snakes. And uh, um, why? <laughs> um, well, in survival school. Which is where? That one was... This, uh, Marianne or PJ, I can't tell which one is, but they just signed on. So and, they're watching. Um, Fort Sill, I think. Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. So survival training? Yeah. Um, Was that to prepare you to go to Vietnam? No, you could take that whenever you wanted. Oh, okay. So, so this is just something that everybody could take? Yeah. Okay. Um, when I started out, I started out at Fort Polk. Fort Polk is where? Louisiana. Okay. So that's where I took basic. Everybody called it Little Vietnam. Because it was hot, humid, muggy, and sandy. Sounds like fun. <laughs> and so, uh, but how, how long were you at Fort Sam Houston for? Um, I got there like the second of January, and mm -hmm. I left there about the end of May. Second, of, so you were there for for months. Yeah. Okay, and during those months, what were you working on? Learning to be a medic. Okay, now uh, I'm gonna fast forward again and then come back. Um, I can remember going to uh, Cantini with you, 
right? And, and there was a, a guy there who was portraying a medic. And, you know, he had his little book out and, you know, he's talking about all the stuff that you guys had to learn in order to go. And uh, compared to what you learned in the book, was it, was it good preparation for what you actually walked into? Well, it was preparation, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. And, and that's kind of the hint that I got when, uh, when you were talking to this guy that, yeah, it may have been in the book, but that's not how things actually played out. All right, so you were at Fort Sam Houston for five months. Yeah. And then after Fort Sam Houston... Oh, did you end up seeing Hugh Akins again? No. Okay, so you never saw Hugh Akins again. Well, yeah, I did. I saw him at Fort Campbell. Fort Campbell. Yeah. And so you went back to Fort Campbell... I went back to Fort Campbell. Before you guys left for Vietnam? Yeah. And so Hugh was also training as a medic? Yeah, Hugh was also training as a medic. He was also 101st Airborne. And uh, we went to, and I saw him at the gym, and he said that he had gotten orders to go to Nam. Okay. Did you guys get the orders at the same time? No, no. He got his orders in June, like three or four weeks after we went back to Fort Campbell. I didn't know I was going to Vietnam until end of July when they said everybody was going. Okay. All right, so so then I'm assuming you went to Fort Campbell and then from there you went to Vietnam. Right. And how long well, you... actually, I went to another uh, outfit. I went to Bravo Battery. Bravo Battery, what, what is that? That's an artillery outfit. Now, you, you told me a story recently about I, a guy from Kankakee, I think? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm getting to that right now. There was two guys there from Kankakee. There was a guy named Brewster, and mm -hmm. then there was the captain. He was from Kankakee. And I think the captain's dad was the mayor of Kankakee at the time. Okay. And so how was it with uh, Bravo Battery? I went to Vietnam with Bravo Battery. Okay. So I Is Bravo Battery 101st? Okay, 101st Bravo Battery. Were, uh, and so there's like the A Company, B yeah. Company, C, D, E... Yeah. Uh, just There's for everybody, if you haven't watched Band of battery, Brothers. Bravo Battery, Charlie. Right. Anyway, and and uh, Easy. And, uh, yeah. and so if you guys haven't watched Band of Brothers, I highly recommend it. They, that's the story of Easy Company from World War II. Uh, anyway, and so you were so Bravo Battery. I trained with them. Mm -hmm. We, uh, I got there one night. The commander of my outfit called me up and says, uh, tells Doc, I want to see him in my office. Mm -hmm. Well, Doc gets ready to sign out. Who's so Doc? Hold me, on, who's Doc? You're Doc. Why me. did they call you Doc? Because I was uh, one of the only medics they had at the time. Okay. So, uh, he says, Doc Gutierrez, I want to see him in my office. Mm -hmm. So I get ready to go sign out on a three-day pass, and Sergeant says, Commander wants to see you, Gutierrez, in his office. I wonder what he wants. I said, is he in there now? Yeah. Yeah. I went in and knocked, and he says, uh, Gutierrez? I said, yes, sir. He says, you're going to Bravo Battery. I said, Bravo Battery? Rocky also joined us, so Rocky's watching. Oh, hi, Rock. And I says, I got a three-day pass coming, sir. He says, it's been canceled. <laughs> that that sucks. It was canceled. He says, uh, I said, well, what am I going to do at Bravo Battery? He says, you're going to Vietnam with me. He says, and the only thing I can tell you is, I said, sir, where's Bravo Battery at? He says, Jeep driver will take you there, my Jeep driver. Okay, he says, pack up all your stuff, you won't be coming back. Okay. And when was that? That was in 
I'm thinking either the first of August, the first week of August or something. Okay. In '67. And so Raina asked, "How long in total were you in Vietnam?" Um. Well, from the end of November till the 26th of January of of. Uh, 69. Now, I there's this rule. Maybe I'm I know it wrong, but the the Sullivan brothers rule. Right. Well, what is the Sullivan brothers? They were four brothers who joined the Navy, I think, and all four of them were killed. They were all in the same outfit. They were all killed. What? Why is that important? Because that was the only four that they had in their family. And uh, while you were in Vietnam, where did what, what happened with Uncle Al? Uncle Al joined the service, I believe? Yeah, he did. Uncle Al joined the service. And where did Uncle Al get stationed? He got stationed in Germany. Awesome. And so, did the Sullivan Brothers rule have anything to do with that? Um, actually, it had a lot to do with it. Why is that? They could only send one uh, family member to war unless the other one volunteered. Okay, so how long were you in Vietnam for? Uh, Raina asks, that's a good, I'm going to get to that, Raina, but uh, that's a good question. Raina wants to know, were you in Vietnam for just a couple of months or over a year? Oh, over a year. I, I went there in 67. And why were you there for over a year? Well, first was, I had gotten a letter saying Uncle Al was going to be shipped out. So I figure, well, I'll just stay here so you can't come here. And then I figure, well, I'll just stay here so when I go home, I'll just get out. Right, so, so that, that's the Sullivan brother rule. That's right. So because you stayed there, Uncle Al didn't have to go to Vietnam. Right. Okay, good. All right. Um, and so you were there for a few months longer. And when you came home, you got discharged. Right. Good. And, and when you got discharged, were you able to come straight home? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, now, I remember hearing a story about a hitchhiking somewhere in Paducah with a ice storm or what, what have you. Uh, actually, it was uh, snowing. Snowing. Snowing in Paducah. Yeah. It had started snowing in 1966 mm -hmm. in Paducah. Well, right before the, the bus got to Paducah, it started snowing. I was on my way home for Christmas, and the bus stopped since we got a 15-minute layover here. Well, half hour later, the bus hadn't moved. <laughs> 25 minutes later, they still hadn't announced. So I went and asked the person behind the counter, when are, when's the bus leaving? He says, there's nothing leaving tonight. It's snowing out. We're supposed to get an inch of snow. An inch. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought to myself, an inch of snow? And that's stopping the bus? And he says, he says, nobody moves. He says, as long as it's snowing out, he says, nothing moves. So I decided, well, I'm going to leave hitchhiking. So I did. <laughs> I left Paducah, got a ride out of Paducah, and this young man picks me up. He says, where are you going? I says, I'm going by Chicago. And he says, well, you're not going anywhere tonight. I says, why not? He says, the only reason I'm out is because I have to go pick up my two drunken brothers from the bar. He says, 
but I'll take you to a restaurant right outside of town and drop you off. And so he did, and he dropped me off, and he says, I'll be back to pick you up about midnight. And I said, I'll be long gone by midnight. Well, come midnight, he showed up, and I was still there. He says, any vehicles going out? I says, no, nothing passed here going out. He says, nothing's out. He says, that's why I decided I'd come back to pick you up, because I knew you'd still be here. So he took me home. Home? Took you home? Where's home? Uh, in Paducah, I guess. I he took you to his home? Yeah, his home. Okay. And um, his mom made me a cup of coffee, told me I could have the couch, and I told him that I wanted up and to be gone out of there by 5 o'clock in the morning. And she says, no problem, we'll wake you up and my son will take you back out. So uh, she woke me up about 4 and made me a cup of coffee and gave me a hot roll. And at about 25 to 5, his son, her son, took me back to that restaurant where nothing really was moving until about 7 o'clock. At about quarter after seven, guess what passed by there? What was that? The bus. <laughs> and I had been on the day before, and he stopped to pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, getting back to, to Vietnam, you were there for how many months then? 15? Uh, almost. Almost 15 months. And, and during that time, were you in there the whole time? Or did you... I mean, I, I don't know how war works. I'm lucky. So... Uh, I'll, I'll get to that, Rock. Um, I don't know how that works. So, at any point in time, was there a break? Oh, they had breaks, but not for me. Why not for you? I was the medic. And what does that mean? That means that they didn't have a replacement for me. <laughs> so, without a replacement, <laughs> you couldn't go nowhere. So, I couldn't take an R&R. &R. I could only go somewhere. I could go into base camp if I needed medical attention, like one day I needed a tooth pull, okay. so I went into base camp, I took a helicopter to base camp about 10 o'clock, and I was supposed to be on a helicopter heading back to Bravo Battery at 2 o'clock, because 2 o'clock was the last time a helicopter would be leaving out that base. Okay. So that was the extent of me getting away from my outfit. Alright, now... I haven't talked too much about Vietnam with you. Um, you don't you don't tell a lot of stories, but is there anything that you want to tell? Anything in general, just about what it was like there? Uh, Raina asked, "What were the weather conditions like?" Well, when I got there, it was muddy. Okay. Puddles everywhere. Puddles like out here, concrete and puddles. No concrete. No mud, concrete. Mud and puddles. Mud and puddles. And um, they said, "Oh, it just got done raining about three hours ago." Well. This was the end of November. I didn't see any more rain until about June. November through June, there was no rain? That's funny, because I think of Vietnam, and I think of just downpours, monsoons. It was the dry season, and no rain. Okay. And then, here's what I remember, was building our huts. People building their huts on dry season. Well, you don't build huts on dry season and not reinforce them. Because comes the rainy season and everything gets soaked down, 
and the, the roof isn't reinforced, it's going to cave in because of the weight. Okay. And we had that happen. One of the guys caught a timber across his head, laid out cold while he was laying in his cot. Well, he called me up that night and he says, hey, Doc, one of the bunkers caved in and one of the guys is underneath all that. So we went over there and I, we got him out, got to him, and uh, I woke him up, checked him out, and I thought he was fine. But the commander says he would feel better if I sent him in. He called in the medevac and got him out and sent him to the hospital. So I said, well, if you feel better, we'll send him in. I'll get a stretcher and get him ready for transport. And he called in the medevac. So the helicopter came in, we loaded him on, and off he went. Three days later, the guy comes back to our unit, and he brings me these bottles of uh, Jack Daniels. And, nice. and thanks me <laughs> for sending him in. And I says, you're thinking the wrong man. I says, the man you should be thinking is the commander. I was going to keep you out here. There was nothing wrong with you. And, but the commander says he would feel better if I sent you in because there might have been something that I missed. So I says, uh, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give one of these bottles to the commander. And he says, you're going to give a bottle? What will he say? He'll say thank you. <laughs> and uh, he says, oh yeah, I forgot. Uh, you're not a regular military person. You get along with officers real well. Um, speaking of that, you're not a regular military person. If you're a medic where you were at, who was your commanding officer? Who was in charge of you? Uh, me? No one. Why not? That doesn't make sense. I was on my own. The only time that I could get told what to do, given a direct order, or given any kind of an order, was by a higher medical personnel. And I was the only medical personnel there. So there was no way that I, anyone could tell me anything. Okay. They could advise me, but they couldn't tell me anything. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple. Rocky, I'm going to get to your question. I think I know the answer, but I'm, I'll get to it eventually. Um, there's a story that I was told about you being posted in the newspaper. And you were writing letters home to, to your mom, to grandma. Uh, what were you writing in those letters? I was writing that I was working in the hospital. Why? It was safe at the hospital. Okay. <laughs> and, so, and so you wanted them to believe that you were working in the hospital and you were yeah, safe. And saw no action. Um, and everything was safe over there. And, uh, and, and what messed that up? I think the guys from my outfit messed it up. How so? A reporter from the Stars and Stripes showed up. And what happened? They told on me. What, what do you mean they told on you? They were interviewing some of the guys and they, some guys told about the medic mm -hmm. and about how the medic saved quite a few guys and this and that and next thing you know, I guess they printed in the Stars and Stripes and sent an article to the Herald News. And, and so the, the article ended up at the Herald News, so then who read, the Herald News is a uh, newspaper out of Joliet then, right? Right. Yeah, and so then who read the newspaper article? I don't know who read it, but 
I wound up getting it over in Nam. <laughs> so what was the conversation? Did you, I don't know. Did you have conversations when you were in Vietnam? Were you able to call home? No. Okay, so they sent letters. It was all letters. letters. What did the next letter look like from home? It was something about, yeah, you're working in a hospital. Safe. Explain this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Um, Rocky asked the question, and, and I, like I said, I think I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyways. What movie, in your eyes, is most accurate to wartime? I don't know. Why not? I don't watch many war movies. Right. Rock, I couldn't remember watching a war movie growing up my all the way up until I hit teenage years. Um, anyway, moving on. So, so you were in Vietnam, you... you there was an article written about you in the Herald News, and you earned some medals. What did you earn? I got three bronze stars, and I don't know how many Army Accommodation medals. The uh, Vietnam medal, and the defense medal, and I don't know what else. But it's all on the records. Okay, so, so you, you got a lot of medals while you were there. Sorry, Mike. My battery is running low, so I want to make sure that I plug this in so I don't lose you during the, the interview. Okay, so, so you, you won... Um, now, I can remember reading Bronze Cluster. What is that? Uh, oak leaf. What, what does that mean? It's when you get more than two uh, bronze stars. They don't give you a star. They give you an oak leaf or an oak leaf cluster, depending on how many you've gotten. And so bronze stars are... Medals for what? Medals that they give you for bravery or... Okay. Does, does everybody get one? Or valor or... I mean, uh, no. Okay. So what did you do to earn those, uh, those, star, those bronze stars? And... Well, they said that I um, did stuff beyond what I should do and beyond everything that I was trained to do. Okay. Uh, do you want to tell that story or no? No. Okay, fair enough. Uh, moving on. So you, you came back home, and somebody who's been to Vietnam, somebody who has medic training, uh, it, om it almost seems logical that that person would go on to college to become a doctor. Is that what you did? No. Why not? Well, I thought about it, uh, but I didn't want to be tied down to having to go to internship and having to be at a certain spot whenever they called and on call and everything else. Okay, so what did you do when you got home? I went to work at Caterpillar. Cat, Cat's a big company in Joliet. <laughs> uh, why, why would you leave? Cat seems like it's going to be a stable job. Uh, I didn't like my, uh, my foreman. We got a new foreman and I didn't care for him. Okay. So. He was a young gun-ho guy who I didn't care for, and besides, I wanted to work outside. All right. And, uh, and so from Cat, where did you go? I went to sewer and water. Later. Water and sewer. All right. <laughs> you wanted to work outside, so you ended up underground. Um, speaking of water and sewer, Rocky also had another question, and, and so I'll, I'll ask it. Um, he said, tell the story about a flock of geese during a coffee break. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, we have coffee breaks standing outside. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the guys would get this cream from McDonald's. You know, for the, 
their coffee. I know where this is going, but well, keep going. oh, that's nasty. I was having <laughs> pancakes and uh, and all of a sudden this white stuff appeared on my pancakes. Well, <laughs> I looked at it and then I looked around to see who was playing with their cream thing. Nobody, everybody was busy eating. So I says, who shot this cream stuff in the, my pancakes? Everybody says, wasn't mine, wasn't us. Well, as I looked down and went to push it away, it was goose dung. Some goose had come potty up there and it landed right on my pancakes, but it bounced off my helmet and landed on my pancakes. Well, the guy says, well, what's that? And I says, that's goose shit. And they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to push it away and eat my pancakes. What do you expect me to do? And some of it landed in my coffee cup. You know, and uh, hey, you're going to drink that? I said, yeah, it went to the bottom anyway. So I drank my coffee. It's kind of nasty. Ate, ate my pancakes and threw the bottom bit of the coffee away and finished my pancakes. And then I looked at my helmet, and it was, you could see where it splattered <laughs> off of it. That's uh, that's kind of nasty. Uh, thanks for that, Rock. <laughs> um, and so at, you said you made, you made that transition to sewer and water, right? And so sewer and water, who'd you work with? Uh, McBee Corporation. Uh, why McBee? Because that's where I got hired into. And my uh, older brother Phil was working there. Okay, so, so Uncle Phil worked with McBee? Well, it wasn't McBee at the time. It was R.T. Stancher. R.T. Stancher, okay. Um, Rocky says, thanks for all the bottom man training, Uncle Sal. You're the man. Hey, Rock, be careful how you phrase that. Because not quite sure how much you want to say bottom man. Anyway, move, moving on. Uh, and so your uh, Uncle Phil worked there. Yeah. And um, now I don't know any stories really of Uncle Phil. And so w what happened with Uncle Phil? Uncle Phil was killed in 71. 1971. Um, uh, December 31st. Okay. Um, April Childress says, love you so much, Uncle Sal. Um, do you have any stories that you, you could tell about Uncle Phil? Because I don't know any stories. Uncle Phil used to love to plant a garden. Okay. Alright. And he lived in a house with his wife and three daughters there on the Old New Lenox Road. Okay. Well, he would tell me and his wife would tell me about how the ha house was haunted. Right? Okay. All right. Well, one day I'm out there helping him with his garden. We're hoeing and everything, keeping it clean. And he says, Sal, why don't you go in and get us a beer? So, I said, okay. Went in the house, left the door open, and the rocking chairs rocking back and forth. I didn't think much of it. Went in the refrigerator, and I hear the door slam close. Well, Wondering who closed the door? There was no one there. Came out of the refrigerator. The rocking chair's going again. So walked out, left the door open. All of a sudden, I hear it close again. 
and turned back and that closed. I thought, well, maybe the wind blew it closed. Mm -hmm. Well, I told my brother Phil about it, and that's when they said, oh, no, that's the ghost that we got in there. It says, one day, uh, his wife says, uh, April was crying, Dawn was crying. And uh, I got up, it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I got up. So you, you were staying there that night? No, no. I lived in Joliet. Oh, okay. Just there for a couple hours. Okay. And she says, and I got up and went into the bedroom, opened the door. She says, and there's this woman holding her and moving her back and forth. She says, and Dawn wasn't crying anymore. And she put her back up on the bed and I closed the door. She says, you could just about see through that person. So there was a spirit, spirit picking her up and rocking her. Right. And later on, they learned that a woman had gotten killed in that house in a fire. Well, about two years after that, the house caught fire again and burnt to the ground. And so Uncle Phil liked to garden. Now, I know that you garden a little bit out there now, and Uncle Al... I mean, Uncle Al gardened some. Where did is, is that all what you grew up with? Like because you guys grew up doing agricultural stuff that actually you kept I, I hate gardening. I hate planting. <laughs> okay. I like animals, but I hate planting. <laughs> all right, and so I, I'm gonna I, I'll come back to the love of animals because that's gonna come back up uh, later. And so Uncle Phil died December 31st, 1971. Is that what you said? Okay, and uh, 1971, uh, how many kids do you have? Did I have a yeah. You. Three. Three. And so in 1971, that puts you with uh, Sal, Robbie, and Angie? Right. Okay. And how many kids does Uncle Phil have? He had four. Four kids. Uh, at 1971, he had four kids? Yeah. Okay. And... Um, and I don't know his side of the family, so did they move? Yeah, they moved to uh, West Frankfurt, I think. West Frankfurt, like Frankfurt, Illinois? West side? No. West Frankfurt, like, Kentucky. Uh, no, West Frankfurt is um, that way. Um, April said, uh, I remember your St. Bernards, they were big babies. How many St. Bernards did you have? Two. Two? What were their names? One was... Valentina. Valentina. And the other one was Pancho Villa. Pancho. Okay, so now I can remember Pancho when I was a kid. Um, Teresa says, uh, Southern Illinois, that must be where you guys moved to. Um, uh, Raina, he told that story at the beginning of the, the video. Raina asked to uh, ask you about the house falling when they were digging the basement in Paris. Raina, that story is what we started off with. You can see it again later. Um, Okay, so Pancho. Now, I, Pancho must have still been alive then when I was born. Yeah. Okay, and so I can remember a picture of me riding Pancho like a horse. <laughs> um, uh, Raina says those dogs slobbered a lot, and uh, Juan says, yep. So those dogs must have been memorable because everybody's posting that they all remember those dogs. <laughs> they, um, they were big. Now, did we used to have a fence in the backyard? Yeah, well, not when we moved in, but I put one up when I got the dogs. Okay, and I can remember seeing a picture. And how tall was the fence? 
Uh, five and a half feet. Five and a half feet. I can remember seeing a picture of those dogs with their paws over the top of the fence. So th those were uh, some pretty big dogs. Um, all right, so we're 1971. Who did you work with? You worked with Uncle Phil and anybody else? Um, yeah, uh, Uncle Jim started there shortly after I did. And, and Uncle Jim worked in water and sewer? Well, I, he was an um, uh, operator. Operator. Okay, Rock, Rocky said that Uncle Jim was one of the best operators of all time. Well, when I started, he was only operating the, uh, the highway. I don't know what and that means. The, the tractor, the thing that picks up the stuff and dumps it back into the ditch. Okay, it's like but, a bulldozer type thing. Yeah. All right. But uh, as time went on, the, uh, our backhoe operator would put Jim on the, would let Jim operate the backhoe, because I guess Jim had operated backhoe before, and so he'd let Jim operate the backhoe, and uh, Jim got pretty good at it, at operating the backhoe, like he knew what he was doing when he got on there. And well, so, uh, that's good, especially if, so, uh, if you guys are down in the hole. <laughs> so, uh, he would operate it more and more, and Norm would get on the tractor more and more. And then uh, one day Norm said he was retiring. Mm -hmm. And Jim got on the backhoe and was on the backhoe ever since. And when, when was that? I'm thinking about 1981, maybe, or okay. two. And so you guys worked together. And, and all, uh, Jim is, how, how are you related to, to Jim? Well, at the time I wasn't, but... As the years went by, he met my sister, Perry, mm -hmm. and uh, they got married, and he was my brother-in-law. Right. And so, so Uncle Jim uh, recently passed away, and um, this is one of the reasons why I want to start doing these videos, is because, you know, the memories that we have now of Uncle Jim, they can only be passed on through, you know, through people's memories, and, and memories fade over time. And so I want to make sure that I'm telling stories in your guys' words and not trying to put my own story into there. Um, and so Uncle Jim, you know, around the 1980s, he was taking over. And then uh, Uncle Al also worked with you? Yeah, Uncle and, Al started about eight or ten months after I did. Okay, and so Uncle Al, he's the younger brother, youngest brother yeah. of all. Okay, and so and how long did you guys work together? Till, oh, maybe 30 years. How many? 30? 30 years? Yeah. And uh, who retired first? Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim retired first. He retired in the end of May, or when we got off for Memorial Day, that was his last day. Okay. Then go back after that, of uh, 205. All right, 2005, and you retired at the same year? Yeah. Okay. And the, the end of December was the last day we worked before we got off for Christmas was my last day. And so you guys all worked together for the same company for a long time, it sounded like. And uh, what happened to that company after you guys left? Well, after Uncle Al left, they folded. What, why do you think that happened? Because most of the guys didn't want to work. <laughs> you guys came from a different breed, huh? <laughs> that's what they said. Yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Um, but you guys have inspired a lot of people to, to go into, you know, to the laboring profession, water and sewer. Um, so, you know, that legacy still lives on. Anyway, moving on. So we're back into the 1980s. 
Um, I was born in 1980. I don't have too many memories, you know, of, of growing up that young. And so, where did we live? On Parks, Parks Avenue. Parks Avenue, and that's in Joliet. In Joliet. Okay. And we lived in Parks from, give me one second here, Raina says, I remember them getting off their construction jobs and going to their mom's house and eating dinner before they went home. Is that right? Um, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That uh, Uncle Al didn't eat much. Okay. Now, Uncle Al probably still doesn't eat much. He's still, uh, <laughs> He's still pretty thin. <laughs> he said he could go home. He had to go home and eat. Yeah. I said, okay. well, I can eat here and go home and eat. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. Um, so, I can remember, you know, as a kid, Uncle Al would pick you up. Yeah. And drop you back off at night. Right. Now, now, how come you guys didn't, how come you didn't drive and where did Uncle Al live and... Well, we started out buying a vehicle and uh, making payments on it every other one and everything else and trying to alternate driving and Al says, might be better off if I just buy the vehicle and you pay for the gas and seeing that I live in Elwood, I'll just pick you up on the way. Okay. So that's the way it went until we got separated in 99 or 2000. Didn't know that that ever happened. So Didn't, didn't ever think that would ever happen. And so you and Uncle Al didn't work together for five years? No. So um, you would drive to your own work site? I would drive to my work site and he would drive to wherever he was supposed to go the next morning. Now, I, what were you driving? I don't remember this story. I was driving a Cadillac to start out with. That Cadillac, that 19, what is it, 1980? 80 Cadillac to start out with. <laughs> ah, that Cadillac was awesome. And so you drive that to work? To work. I thought you drove it to Uncle Al's house and then he took you to work. Um, I did drive it to Uncle Al's house, but then we got separated, so I would drive it to work. And now where, whereabouts were you working those years? Oh... I done forgot we were working in Naperville, in Wheaton, in Glen Ellen. Now, now one of the things that I that, that obviously I know about you growing up, but uh, did you take the highway to work? I wouldn't take the uh, um, like three fifty five, or or I would only take fifty five as far as I could take it to get off, but. Uh, I would mainly just take 53, you know, back roads. Now, and that hasn't changed much. Now, I can remember growing up, I don't remember too much seeing a highway. Um, how come you don't take the highways off? Well, if you get on 55 and there's a wreck, there's no way off. If you get on 355 and there's a wreck, there's no way off. You have to wait to get to an exit. But if you take the back roads and something happens, you can always turn around. And go back around. Okay. All right. And so that was one of the reasons why we never took the highway. Um, and so you drove that Cadillac, sounds like hundreds and hundreds of miles. Well, a you lot had of miles a lot of trust in that car. How much did you buy that car for? 300. <laughs> That's awesome. And how long did it last for? Just short of five years. I, I did not know that you drove that car to work. I literally thought you drove it to Uncle Alice House and back. Um, Tell me you did your deer. Did you, did you hit a deer? Uh, yeah. 
With my wife Ida in the car. In the Cadillac? Yeah. Oh, okay. In the Cadillac. Now that Cadillac was a beast though. It was a smooth ride that And I was doing about 60 mile an hour in ice and snow. Mm-hmm. And I said, dear. And she's putting on eyeliner and says, dear, what do you think, dear? And then all of a sudden she says, dear, the dear. And by the time I looked forward, it was too late. Oh, that's hilarious. And I smashed into that deer, and he went sliding down the front of me, and she's hollering, don't run over him, don't run over him. And all I could see was his feet kicking. Finally, I got the car to a stop, and I couldn't see the deer. And I said, where'd he go? She said, oh, he went around behind him so you wouldn't hit him again. <laughs> and uh, so, so now I'm going <laughs> to... Go back to the 80s. Now, I have memories of uh, playing baseball. And so you coached, right? How long did you coach for? From 79 to 89. So you coached for 10 years. Where'd you coach? Belmont Middle East. Uh, why'd you coach there? Because before that, I was safety officer there. Why, what got you involved with Belmont Little League? My other brother-in-law, Jack Cotton. Oh, Jack Cotton got you there, huh, Uncle Jack? Um... I don't understand that, because how did Uncle Jack, because I don't remember Uncle Jack at Belmont, so... Um, Jesse, their son Jesse used to play there, and he was cutting the grass, keeping the, the field in tip-top shape, and uh, they needed a safety officer, and he says, I know a perfect person. Well, little did I know how much work that involved, but I became safety officer, and Stayed at safety officer for like three years. What year, whereabouts is this in time? I think about 76 on. Okay, so this is well before I was born. Well and so Jesse, Jesse played. Jesse uh, at the time hadn't started yet. But oh, so he was a kid kid. Yeah. Okay. But Jack was there cutting grass and keeping the field up. Right. I, did, so, I did not know that. Um... And Raina, I can't answer that question. Um, she asked a technological, technological, technological question. I don't know the answer to. Um, so, so Jesse was there, and is Jesse older than Sal? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that either. Um, so Jesse ended up playing in the minors. Yeah, he was in the minors. And then you were you coaching while Jesse was there? Uh, I think so. Okay, but then maybe not. I think I was. And Sal started playing then, I'm assuming. Yeah. And so did you coach Sal? No. You didn't coach Sal? No. So you were a coach there, but he wasn't on your team? No, he. I wasn't a coach there. At the oh, time. okay, okay, okay. I was safety officer. Okay. And so what got you coaching Blackhawk? Well, there was a guy named Murphy. I forgot what his first name was. He broke his leg. He broke his leg at work. And um, he was doing okay. His team was doing fine. He had coaches. And he was doing okay. Well, they released him to go back to work. And two months after he went back to work, he worked on the grain elevators. Dust or something. And um, static electricity. And that didn't quite work. He was up on top of one of the silos and it exploded. He got killed. And this is 
a week before tryouts and they needed a manager. Well, since they needed a manager before tryouts and it was only a week and nobody wanted to take the team, I decided, well, I'll give it a try. And you were able to coach and work even though you were coming from such a long distance to, to come back? Uh, yeah, I had two coaches that could be there. Who, who, who were your coaches? At the time, I don't remember the one. I had his son playing with us. And the other one was Ralph Bialis. Okay. Uh, and, and his son was playing that year with us. And so Sal played, but you didn't coach him. So Sal was already in the majors by the time you started coaching? Right. And Robbie was too. Robbie was in the majors too. And so Sal played baseball. Robbie played baseball. Anybody else played baseball? Yeah, Nick played baseball as Monster. Okay. And Rob, did Rob have a nickname? Not at that time. <laughs> what was uh, what was Robbie's nickname? Hey, Rob, I see you're on here, so I, I might as well ask. I think they called him Pugnose. <laughs> and why did they call Robbie Pugnose? I wouldn't know. <laughs> Rob, maybe you can fill me in on that one later. Uh, so Sal played, Robbie played, Nick played. Were they any good? Yeah, they were all good. They were all good? Okay. Um, now, I ended up playing later, and I won't ask because I think I was the best one out of all of them, actually. It's probably, probably the worst one out of all of them, but that's beside the point. And so, you kept coaching. Right. Okay. And did you coach all of your sons except for Robbie and Sal? No, I didn't coach. Yeah, yeah, I coached <laughs> Nick. Robbie said his nickname was Panzas. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, could have been. Um, <laughs> yeah, I coached Nick, too. You, co you coached Nick? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. All right. Um, and did you coach me? I coached you, too. And then when did you stop uh, being a coach? In 1989. Why'd you stop? I was working too far away. I couldn't make it to the games on time or nowhere near on time. And I couldn't make it to practice. So we had moved to a different location at work and we're just too far away so now I, I i hear stories obviously and so i hear stories from nick and sal and some from you and that that your sons were all damn good baseball players they were uh where do you think that they got that either talent or drive or where do you think that that came from i wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> fair enough all right i'll i'll, I'll move on um I remember a story about you had a, a lucky penny. Actually, I had a penny. Yeah, you had a penny. I don't know how lucky it was, <laughs> but everybody thought it was a lucky penny. All right. And as long as that lucky penny was in my boot, we couldn't lose. And It's I, funny for a team that always was in last place. Um, <laughs> actually, we weren't always in last place. Oh, really? Did you win one year? Uh, actually, we won a couple years straight. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we took second a couple of years, so we weren't in last place all the time, or <laughs> even close to last all place. All right, then in that case, I'll take that meaning that it was my teams that were always in last place. Uh, <laughs> I did get a rule changed over there. What was the rule? The rule was you had to take your options before. You could take them fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh on pitch. Describe that. What does that mean? You have to take your options. In other words, if... You've got a kid's brother trying out. Yeah. 
you can take him on the fourth round. Okay. If you got a coach who's got a son, mm -hmm. you can take him on the fourth round or the fifth or the right. sixth. Well, the one year I had seven options and they were all good. And I needed 10 kids. So I got my first round pick, my second round pick, my third round pick. Then I took my options to the 10th. And that put a stop to that. They said every kid that he got as an option could have gone as a first round pick. And he got one of them on the 10th round. Mm -hmm. So they stopped that and they said from now on you have to take your options from the second round on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so let's see. So you coached till 89, and what happened between 89 and 90 in, in your life? I met my wife, Ida. Awesome. And now, after you met Ida, did you guys stay in Joliet? For a while. How long? A couple months, three months. That's, not, that's not a while, then. That's, after, that's a blink in the eye, really. <laughs> after we got married, a couple months. And, um, and where did you move and why did you move? We moved to Elwood mm -hmm. because um, we needed a bigger place and Joliet wasn't a great place to live anymore. Joliet wasn't a great place to live anymore. Um, describe that a little bit more. So, I mean, I, I know how it was when I was growing up, but what was it in your eyes? Well, gangs were starting to take over neighborhoods and it just wasn't a good place to live. Okay, and so I think I, I must have been 9 or 10. I just graduated from 5th grade at the time. 6th grade. 5th grade. I took 6th grade. 5th grade. Yeah, and so Ida had, has two sons, right? Right. And, and who's that? Michael and Danny. Okay, and, um, and there's still one other that we haven't mentioned yet. And, and who's your daughter? Angie. Good. Okay, and so did we... <laughs> did, and so we all moved to Elwood? No. No? Who moved to Elwood? You and Nick mm -hmm. and Robbie stayed there for a little bit. Yeah. And Sal stayed there for a little bit. Yeah. And Dan and Michael. Okay. And um, now everybody moved out at some point. <laughs> you know what? I guess I can't even say that really, can I? <laughs> um, so I, I can remember it was me there for the most part, and so you retired after you had moved to Elwood for, what, 15 years you were in Elwood, and then you, you finally retired? More or less, yeah. Okay, and um, let's see, what, what haven't we talked about yet? Okay, we'll go back in time a little bit. Um, what's... What's the thing that, that you're most proud of for your legacy? Now remember, um, Lena's kids are going to be watching this at some point, a hundred years from now. All right, what, what do you want your legacy to be that I can't, that I obviously can't say those words? I want no. I like to be remembered as an animal lover. Okay. And and what are you doing now with your life that you know kind of lives those values? Well, between having two dogs. Two cats, a bird at home, and a horse of my own, and Sal has two horses, and at the barn there's 22 of them. I take care of all of them. Okay. Um, 
Raina asks, uh, what's Ida's maiden name? Alvarez. Alvarez. Uh, Raina's putting together a family tree, so she's trying to get everybody's, uh, everybody's name in there. Uh, Teresa says, have him tell you about my horse he took care of. Oh, yeah, the little pony. Trixie, I think what's its name. Um, she, um, she wasn't too bad, except for one thing. When I started getting rid of the animals, she had to go to the glue factory. Oh, jeez. And uh, <laughs> Uncle Jim, Great story. And, and, Uncle Jim, and Uncle Jim kept on telling her that every time she licked an envelope, she was licking the fixing, you know what. Um, oh, Uncle Jim was awesome. Actually, <laughs> Trixie and another pony went to uh, uh, Oak Brook to a stable over there that gave kids, well, they didn't give them, they, kids paid, the parents paid for pony rides, mm -hmm. and that's where the two ponies wound up, those two ponies, and uh, that's where my horse wound up. Um, Teresa said that she cried so much. <laughs> anyway, uh, Raina asked, back in time, did, did he have to have a chaperone when he was dating? No. No. Okay. She said her mom did when she was yeah. 24 years old. The women, the, the girls did. Okay. Um, now, I, again, I want to go back. So, animal lover. Is that the only thing you want to be remembered for? Just. Well, I'd like to be remembered as... A good old guy. Okay. Uh, all right. Now I, I've got. Now I, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to start telling the stories through my eyes a little bit. Um, I can remember growing up and Nick got beat up once. Uh, you remember that story? I think so. Nick got put into the hospital, right? And right. Somebody hit him. Um, tell me what you remember about that story. Well, I remember that. Um, he come in the house and his nose were all bloodied and I asked what happened and he says, somebody hit me with a chain. And so we took him to the hospital, his nose were broken and I said, well, don't worry about it. He'll get his and I think by a year and a half later, he either got killed or something. Okay. Um, now, I... Obviously, you know, I mean, I, I'll keep saying, I mean, I, I wrote it to you a couple of times, but you're my Superman, right? So there was a time when, I think his name was Roberto, Robert, whatever his name was, I don't remember, but he was standing on the Hodges' porch, okay? And, um, and, and you had asked me to stay in the truck, the old green truck, I think, that we had back then, and, uh, and you went up and you, obviously I wasn't going to stay in the truck, and so I, I got out of the truck behind you a little bit. And, uh, and this guy threatened you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and I, I was really young at the time, so, I mean, that must have been, what, six, seven? I mean, I don't have too many memories, but these are some of those that are vivid. And uh, I can remember you looking at him and say, Son, I will hurt you before you ever get a chance to pull the gun out of your waistband. And, and, and at that point right there, I was like, Okay, my dad is badass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so... You know, when, when I think about legacy, these are the stories that, I, that I'm going to end up telling, you know. And, um, there was a, a time where we were downtown Joliet. Uh, you remember the magazine shop? Yeah. 
Okay. And so we were downtown Joliet the magazine shop, and uh, and somebody, I think somebody took your tools? Uh, actually, we weren't at the magazine shop. We oh. had gone to, uh, if I recall, we had gone over to the shoe repair shop. Oh, okay. With well, Andy's, I think that's what it was called? Yeah. Okay. And we were walking, it was closed anyway, and uh, we were walking back to the truck. Mm-hmm. And someone was coming out of the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, I told you to wait in the truck again. And uh, <laughs> I went after him. Wait in the, and you ran after this guy. Yeah, and I ran after this guy. Well, when he turned the corner, there were six other guys there. And they started walking my way, which was no big problem. I asked them where that guy went, and they said, what guy? Well, they followed me back to the truck, and I told them we had words, and they left, and we got back in the truck and left. Okay. All right. Um, April, it's funny, because April mentions this, and I'm actually going to have you tell the story that, that actually just happened today. Um, April says, I will remember you as a sweet, kind, gentle, and generous man. One that would give you the shirt off his back, even if it was his last shirt. Uh, what, what just happened today, that, uh, that shirt off the back thing is kind of funny. Um, I'm sitting in the living room and Vince says, I got something for you. And he brings in the shirt, Screaming Eagles shirt. And I've never seen it, but at the bottom it said Beer Brewery. And uh, he told me about a man over at his job that uh, one of his patients that he asked about the 101st, were you ever in the 101st? And the guy says, no. He says, why? And he says, because you're wearing a Screaming Eagles t-shirt. And the man says, Screaming Eagles? He says, yeah, that's the 101st Airborne. That's the logo for it. They wear an eagle on their arm as a patch. Well, the guy says, well, what do you know about that? And he said, well, my dad was in the 101st Airborne. He was a screaming eagle. Well, the guy and I'd like to know where you bought the shirt at so I can buy one just like it. And the guy says, I bought it up in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy come back again, this patient again, the following week, and brought him back a shirt. And he says, here, give this to your dad. I washed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so April, it's, uh, it's funny. Other people will literally give the shirt off their back. Okay, so we talked about, you know, the, the house on parks. We moved to, what happened to the house on parks? Uh, Sal took it over. All he right. bought it and uh, he started remodeling it and it burnt down. It burnt down. All right, so the house isn't there anymore. No. Okay. Um, and so then we moved to Elwood, and you retired. Anything, um, what happened health-wise for you around the time you retired? Well, before I retired, I knew I was sick. I just wasn't sure how bad. And uh, I decided to go mess around with horses at a stable for a while, at a barn. And then I had to go to the doctor. Well, when I went to the doctor, the doctor starts poking at me, and uh, she hits my ribs, and I said, that's tender there. And she wanted to know why, and I told her, well, 
got kicked by a horse and I got a couple fractured ribs. And she said, how do you know they're fractured? So I said, I know where the fractured rib is. I've had them broke before. So I had to go take some blood work and test and stuff and she calls me to the office one day. First they call me and they said, the doctor wants to see you. And I said, well, I got an appointment on Thursday. This was Monday. And the woman says, oh, that'll be fine. Well, Tuesday, my wife Ida and I are out for breakfast and I get a phone call. This time it's the doctor. And she says, didn't you get my message that I wanted to see you right away? And I says, no, I got your message that you wanted to see me. And I told her that I'd be in on Thursday when I got an appointment. And she said, fine. She says, no, I want to see you in my office right away. How soon can you get here? Well, I said, well, we're having breakfast, and I'll go after we get done with breakfast. Probably an hour, an hour and a half. She said, well, when you get here, you come straight in. So I did. They sent me on in, and she come out, and she starts poking around, and once no, this and that hurts, and I says, no. And she says, there's something wrong with your lung, and I don't know what it is, and I send you to a lung specialist. That's fine. You're the boss. So I went to a lung specialist, and after running some tests, he says, you got cancer. You got, and half of your lung will probably have to come out. He says, but I want a biopsy. Okay, so my wife drove me to the hospital, and they were going to give me a biopsy, but the guy says, I can't do one there. I'll collapse your lung. But I can do one on the other side. He said, the other side? Yeah, on that big mass you got there. I said, no, them are broken ribs. So he looks at the x-rays again, and he says, yeah, you can see the fractures. Okay. He says, you'll have to go back to the lung specialist. They'll have to find another way to perform a biopsy. So I went back to the lung specialist, and he says, well, you'll have to see a surgeon. So by that time, Ida had a surgeon in mind, and I went to see the surgeon, and the surgeon says, there's two things we can do. We can cut you open, get a biopsy, close you back up, and you spend five days in the hospital. And if it's cancerous, you come back again, we cut you open again, cut out everything that's cancerous, and you spend 10 days in the hospital. And I said, no, you cut me open, you take it out, and I'll spend 10 days in the hospital, and I'll forget about it. <laughs> so he said, fine, we can go that route. And... That's the route we went. Well, later on, after I got out of intensive care and everything, he come up and he says, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is, we could have gotten it, we got it all out. <laughs> bad news is, we could have dissolved it without an operation. It wasn't cancerous. And so how much did they take out? About a third of it. <laughs> okay. Uh... Any, any symptoms left over from that, do you notice? Just the scar. Good enough. All right. If, does anybody else out there have any questions for my dad? I mean, I've got a few more that I'm going to ask, but just, you know, prep if you got any other questions to ask. Um, so after you retired, you ended up getting a horse? Yeah. Who, how'd you get the horse? Sal calls me up one day and says, hey, Dad, you want a horse for Christmas? 
And I said, what am I going to do with a horse? And he says, well, you can train it. He says, uh, would you want a horse? And I said, well, where am I going to keep it? He says, there's a place by your house you can keep it. He says, and I'll pay the first year's rent. So I said, oh, okay. And he said, what kind of horse would you want? And I says, a paint. What's a painting? It's a horse of a couple colors. Okay. Black and white, brown and white, and uh, it's also a, uh, a breed. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, we went to look at a whole bunch of them. I had like 10 or 12 of them for sale, all young, all between six months and eight months. And I didn't like none of them. But he had one running around out in the pasture that I liked. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him if that one was for sale. And he says, yeah. That one's for sale, but I don't think you want that one. No one has had anything to do with it. And I told Sal, that's the one I want out there. So uh, Sal says, are you sure? You want that ugly thing out there? Look at the way he holds his ears. Look at, he's not a, a nice looking horse. I says, not right now. Oh, wait another year. Well, he got that horse real cheap. Brought it over to the barn. And... The guy says, you guys know much about horses? And Sal says, no. And uh, the guy said, well, watch what you're doing because that horse can hurt you. Well, about a week went by and the guy tells Sal, he says, you guys came here pretending you know very little about horses, but every day that passes by, you know a whole lot more than you let on to know. <laughs> um, one says, how did you tell time when you were at work? Oh, Jesus. Uh, by the sun. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> I told time by the sun. I had a hard hat. Yeah. And I could put it over my eyes like this and look at the sun and tell you exactly what time it was. <laughs> and that went on for quite a few years until... One of the guys says, how come he's always within a minute of the right time? And Uncle Jim says, you ever see how he takes off his hard hat and looks at the sun, shades his eyes? He says, look at the hard hat. So they looked in the hard hat and there was a clock. In there. <laughs> I says, so I could literally put it over my head like this, look up and see their time. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> So I would always be within a minute of the right time. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know that story either. So thanks for asking that question, Juan. It took many years for people to find that out. <laughs> um, does anybody else out there have any questions for my dad? Uh, you know, Dad, if you could give advice to not just, not just me, but, you know, advice to any of those watching. You know, I mean, it's, it's essentially all the first cousins are watching this. Um, or, you know, Lena when she grows up, what advice would you give? Treat other people the way you want them to treat you. Golden rule. Yeah, golden rule. Awesome. Um, anybody out there in, in uh, you know, the, the family have any questions for my dad? If not, we're going to wrap it up here. I gave you, you know, five seconds to ask. Um, otherwise, you know, thanks for watching. Um, you know, Rocky was in on this. Juan was in. I think Jonita showed up at some point. Uh, Robbie, I know you're still out there. If you have any questions that, that you want, again, I'm the youngest, so I don't have too many memories from, from that time, but if you have any questions that you want to ask Dad, um, you know, rock and fire.
Teresa says, love you and hope to see you soon. Love you too. Did you Well, it's not about me, though. No, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story about him, though. Go ahead. He was playing in Wilmington for the All-Stars. And the guys were playing on a very, very hot Saturday or Sunday. It was a Sunday. And it was awfully hot that morning. And they had to be there at 8.30. And I game, remember this story. Actually. And the game was at 9.30 or something. And the temperature at 8.30 was something around 89. And they played the game and they won. Well, they had to play Sandwich. Sandwich was an awesome team. And Vince comes over to me and he says, Hey, Dad, can you talk to the team? I says, For what? He says, Because they're all thinking we can't beat Sandwich. They're all thinking that they're tired, it's hot, and Sandwich is much too good of a team. And I said, Well, why don't your coaches talk to them? Our coaches don't talk to us. How about the manager? <laughs> Our manager don't talk to us. So I says, well, get the team together. I'll talk to him. So he got the team together on the bleachers, and I says, I hear you guys think you've already lost this game before you even played it. And they says, yeah, we've been out here since 8 o'clock this morning, 8.30, and look how hot it is. I says, yeah, I know it's hot out here. I says, look out there in that driveway coming in. I says, what do you see? They says, sandwich team. I says, no, look closer. What do you see? Well, what are we supposed to see? All that teams carrying, all them cars that are carrying the sandwich teams, what are they doing? They got their windows rolled up. They're all driving in air condition. I says, when them kids hit this field and this heat gets to them, they're going to hit the water jug. And when they hit the water jug, they're going to keep on hitting that ice water. And then they're going to get sick out in the field. They're going to be throwing up. I says, and if you guys can't be the sick team, something's wrong with you. <laughs> and so what happened with that game? Uh, Wilmington won it. Wilmington won. We won that game and we advanced on to the next, uh, the next tournament for the, for the state. I think we ended up playing at uh, uh, St. Joe's Field. It was the first time that a team from Wilmington had ever made it that far in a state competition. They had a banner all of our names went on the banner. Uh, they, they hung the banner up at the, at the field for the next 10 years until the next team finally made an on pass where we made it. Uh, anybody else have any questions out there? If not, you know, we're going to sign off. So I'll give you another five seconds to, to ask any questions. Anything else that you want to say, Dad? Uh, no, that's about it. All right. Perfect. Bye, guys. Thanks for watching. Good morning, all. So traffic was much better on my way to work this morning, so I'm here 20 minutes early. So I figured I'd uh, go into a story from yesterday, right? So I had two patients yesterday that surprised me with what they said during the, the, the session. The, the first one was coming in to start a session. And so the first patient is, um, let's say, above 90 years old. And I'd seen this patient in the past for something but this patient had been through a couple of other therapists before coming to see me. And she asked, she said, Vince, you know why I come back to see you again? Uh, you know, I, I'd like to think it's because I'm good, but <laughs> that wasn't the answer. Right? Um, she said, uh, you say good morning to me. 
and uh, you ask me about my day. And, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, well, I had to ask the follow-up question. What were the experiences like in the past? And she said, the therapist just told me to come in and do, you know, get on the bike, do this, do that, but never actually asked me about me. And, and again, it's, it's a shame as to what happens in our profession, you know, because sometimes they're so busy managing the circus that they, they have trouble, um, taking each patient out individually and having these conversations. So yeah, that was the first one. And, and I think that that's a lesson for us to learn in our profession is that we have to empathize with the patient. You know, we, we have to communicate with the patient. We, we have to show that connection with the patient because that one keeps the patient engaged, right? Two, but it's just the right thing to do. I mean, it's, that's just being a person, you know, and, and, and that's the part that I think kills me the most because it's just being a person, you know, when we're outside of the clinic, we say hi to people. When we're outside of the clinic, we use people's names. Oh, I'm going to touch on that one in a second. Uh, when we say hi to people we, we, and we use people's names, um, it shouldn't be any different in the clinic just because we're working. So the, the second one um, was actually it caught me off, caught me off guard for a second. Um, and it's, it's a good thing I'm, you know, like steel trap sometimes in that brain. Um, and so I'm evaluating this patient and I'm at the point now where I'm taking measurements and, and the patient says, do you know my name? <laughs> what? Huh? Do you know my name? Tell me my name. Okay. Uh, I gave first name and last name. And she says, good, because when I went to another therapy, <laughs> it's just, it's like you can't make these stories up, you know, when I went to another therapy clinic, the therapist didn't even know my name who was working with me. I mean, like, that's just not cool. You know, the quickest way to show that you don't care is to, is to, to never learn your patient's name. Um, yeah, not, not cool. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's just the small details, right? That, that the patients will see that you care and you, you have to pay attention to the small details. But outside of that, those patients, they're telling you something, they're communicating something with you or they're communicating with me, right? They were communicating with me things that I need to pay attention to for future sessions, right? So for the one patient, I need to make sure that I continue to do that communication because I, when I start each session, I'll typically sit a patient down for three, maybe five minutes, and we'll just have a, a conversation, how things are going, what, is there anything new that I need to know? Um, but it's it's a face-to-face, -face, you know? They're not doing anything else. It's it's, it's unencumbered, right? And, um, and so I need to make sure that I continue to do that with that patient because that's appreciated by that patient. And for the second patient, I may need to say her name more during the session, right? Because that's something that she values and I, and I have to make sure that I'm taking that value into consideration so the patient doesn't think that I'm forgetting about her. So yeah, just some quick tips that you can use in the clinic. Um, make sure that patients know you care. There's that phrase, right? I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. Um, yeah, so make sure that the patients know that you care about them. Uh, you guys have a good day.